outside of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that the bush was on fire. It did not burn up. That though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight. Why the bush does not burn up. And the Lord saw that he had gone over to look. God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. At this Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt." But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. I'm going to read from uh, Hebrews 11, just a few verses from verse 1 to 3 and then 23 to 28. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for, by faith. We understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. Verse 23. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ 
as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt, because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and the application of bloods so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. I don't know whether you're a sci-fi person or a soap person. I think every congregation you can divide into two between sci-fi people who prefer sci-fi, and soap people who prefer the soaps. And uh, if I took a straw poll now, I would imagine that I would be in the minority. I'm a sci-fi person. Uh, sci-fi people. Soap people. Well, and there's a few neutrals on that, or non-committals, but there's definitely more soaps and sci-fis. I like sci-fi because uh, it appeals to my imagination of uh, kind of traveling to other worlds or traveling through time. And people who write sci-fi or time travel stuff must do their research to find out what the... I look at all of the props in some of these period dramas and I think, uh, because I'm into antiques, and I think, have they got the right kind of glass on the table for that period? Is that 18th century or is that 19th century? And generally speaking, the people that are putting the backdrop in and the costumes and everything else have done their research. Um, but it does appeal to my imagination. And I imagine what it might be like to be a time traveler, uh, passing through a time portal and emerging in Egypt in the time of Moses that we have read about here. The people that we would find there would be limited in their knowledge, although they were not uneducated by any means. The Egyptians could build these amazing pyramids. How do you do that? Well, they must have had some knowledge of mathematics and engineering to put up these uh, astonishing structures so long ago. They would be puzzled and perhaps would look at us with disbelief if we told them that in the future people would travel to the moon and talk to them about satel satellites or sat-nav or uh, the internet. I don't think they would necessarily have the ability to perceive or to understand what we were talking about. And I dare say they could learn quite a lot from us. Although I think we could learn something from them too. Perhaps that which is not written in history or has been recorded in history, uh, but nevertheless we could learn from them as well. We would have little common ground with the people of Egypt in that time, except in this one element that we would find with the people of God, the Hebrews. And that would be a knowledge of and an experience of and a relationship with the one true God, creator of heaven and earth, 
who uh, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And you know that connectivity that we can have with Christians if we meet them in some other context, it could be in a car park. If you've driven up or arrived in a car park and you, you see a vehicle with a, a fish um, sign on the back and you know that the people there are Christians, you might strike up a conversation and find you've got very much in common with them when you start speaking about the things of faith. Uh, but that's, that would be the connection point that we would have with the Hebrews who are believers in the living God. So there's probably quite a lot that uh, they could learn from us. What could we possibly learn from them? Well, these people had a past. If we're transported from the present time into ancient, ancient Egypt, we would have discovered two races here, in particular within Egypt. Two races living in tension with one another. The Hebrews, most probably descendants of a nomadic people called the Habiru, who were from Mesopotamia, but now were slaves in Egypt. And it hadn't always been this way. Joseph, for those of us who know our Bible, those who know this, this period of history, Joseph had arrived in Egypt as a slave, but he had risen to power, and he had saved people in a time of unforeseen famine, except that God had revealed it to him through his dreams. And he had um, come to power, but then things began to change, and the Egyptians felt threatened by the increasing numbers of the Hebrews. And so a new pharaoh rose up who didn't know Joseph, and these Hebrews were persecuted to the point at which they were made slaves. And in addition to this, there was an order that their firstborn sons should be slaughtered in order to keep the numbers of their population down. And this was the world into which Moses was born and rescued as a child and brought up in Pharaoh's palace, though he refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And he preferred, as we see in the book of Hebrews, to identify with the people of God. The Hebrews were a remarkable race, Central to their history was that God had chosen them out of all the peoples of the earth to reveal who God is. God revealed himself to Abraham, and Abraham put his trust in the Lord. And then throughout the history of the patriarchs, we've got different revelations of God to the patriarchs, such as Jacob, who encounters God and he wrestles with the angel of the Lord as he seeks a blessing upon his life. And it was characteristic of God to reveal himself progressively to the people. God can only be known in as much as God chooses to reveal himself. You can't find God in a science lab. You can't go into Strathclyde University or Glasgow University or Edinburgh or some research department where there's a department that actually wants to discover more about God. We can discover more about the created world because God has made the created world subject to us. But we are created subject to God and God is not part of the created order. God is other than the created order. 
God is uncreated, yet is the creator, and we are subject to God. God is not subject to us, and God can only be known inasmuch as God reveals to us who God is, and that took place over time. God cannot be known in any other way except that He reveals who God is to us. And not everything that can be known about God has been made known about God. There is more about God that we do not know, that we will not know, because God's supreme and final revelation to us was in the person of Christ. And there was much leading up to that. God reveals himself to Abraham, and he knows a little. He knows very little. In fact, he knows that he's got a promise from God. He knows who God is, and he steps out in obedience, not knowing where he's going. He knows, but he doesn't know. Greater revelation would come, not least with God revealing himself further to Moses. And God re reveals himself progressively through history, as was made known in his names, which some of which can be seen on the screen just now. To Moses, the Lord appears to him in a burning bush and reveals himself as I am. This amazing word. I am who I am, I will be who I will be. It implies that God is not only who God is in essence, with the name of God, the sacred name of God, Yahweh. But God will also continue to reveal himself progressively through history, more and more to the people. For not everything that could be known about God was made known to Moses. More was yet to come. Not everything that could be known about God was made known to Abraham at the time. To Abraham... The Lord is revealed as Jehovah Jireh. He provides a lamb for sacrifice. To Gideon, Jehovah Shalom, the Lord is peace. As he saw the face of God and lived, to Moses I am. And to the disciples and to us, Jesus, the word of God and the light of the world. Indeed, God has revealed himself to us supremely, and ultimately, in Christ. And we have recorded in Scripture that which is sufficient. It's quite interesting to read at the end of John's Gospel that the whole, there's not even enough room for all the books in the world to record everything that Jesus said and did, but what we have is sufficient for our salvation and godly living. So we don't know everything that can be known about God, but what we do know is sufficient for salvation and right conduct. And although we know more about God now than the people at the time of Moses, we can still learn from them. If we were time travelers living in that day and age and we've just landed into this, uh, uh, this era and we understand the language and we can communicate with them, what could we learn from them. I think one of the things is that comes from the whole understanding of progressive 
revelation, God revealing Himself gradually over a period of time, ultimately in Christ, is that we are not saved by knowledge. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ. The truth that we discover is that we do not need to know everything about God that could be known about God, or even our Bible very well, in order to be counted amongst the people of God. We don't come to salvation by a knowledge of the Scriptures alone, though some knowledge is necessary. In, this say, in saying this, I'm not diminishing the value of Bible reading or studying or learning the, the Bible, which I promote. We need to be in the Word and get to know the Word and become strong in our knowledge of the Scriptures. But knowledge of the Scriptures is not the way of salvation. Satan knows the Scriptures, doesn't save the devil. Who among the patriarchs had a Bible? Who amongst the disciples or members of the early church in Ephesus or Corinth or Philippi had a Bible as we have a Bible today? And yet they came to faith in the living God. They were saved by Christ. And there was salvation for the people of God in Old Testament times before Christ. How can, that, how can this be? They were saved actually through Christ, even though Christ died and rose at a later time. They were saved by faith in God through the covenants of the time. For ultimately, there was only one sacrifice for sin, and that was of the Lord Jesus Christ for all persons, for all time, who will believe in Him. And that atonement stands in eternity. So it was not that all who were before Christ were not saved, and only from the time of Christ could people be saved. For God is an eternal God. And Hebrews chapter 11, verses 39 to 40, say this. And it's of these people of faith that are recorded in the Hebrews chapter 11. These were all commended for their faith, yet, not, yet none of them received what had been promised since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they, made, would they be made perfect. Let me read that again. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. What's the something else that God has planned? It's Christ who atoned and atones for all who put their faith in Him. So, as we imagine ourselves amongst these people living at the time, we encounter a people with a living faith and a living God even before the time of Christ. So, they had a past, but they also had, um, they faced a present crisis. These people... Uh, faced a present crisis. We experience crises in life. We can't avoid them. It's nice to have a, a period of peace and uh, relaxation and everything seems to be going fine, but we know that sooner or later there's going to be a crisis along the way. Circumstances can change very suddenly. It happens in schools, happens in workplaces, happens in neighborhoods, happens in countries, happens in families, 
happens in churches. We get used to this period of stability when everything is settled for a season and then comes an intervention. A new head teacher is appointed in the school who is like the new broom that sweeps clean and not everybody seems to be getting on with the new regime. New boss at work. A death in a family. New neighbors who move in next door who are not like the neighbors you had before, who don't seem to respect boundaries, whether it's noise or territory or litter or dogs. Britain votes to leave Europe. A new prime minister is appointed. Churches face challenges of sociological change and find adaptation too difficult to, to cope with and descend into apparent unstoppable decline. We see it in the land. There's an African saying, it's the next slide there, um, which is made famous in uh, Chinua Achebe's book, uh, Things Fall Apart. It's a very interesting book on Nigerian African culture. And uh, it's uh, No Condition is Permanent. It's a very true saying. It's, it's a, an identification identifiable as we observe life. And it was particularly so for the Hebrews at the time in Egypt when they'd had this history and yet things had changed with the new Pharaoh being appointed who didn't know Joseph. And a crisis occurred. What happened to them? How did life for the Hebrews in Egypt change from favor to adversity? And Becoming, be, being welcomed guests, becoming tortured slaves. How did this take place? Well, we know what triggered the event. But this surely must have caused the people of God to begin to doubt. There's nothing like a crisis, an intervention, something unexpected that doesn't meet our expectation of God to cause us to doubt and to question. And yet, the Lord of the covenant with his people was with them. God was with the people. We might ask similar questions when unfavorable circumstances begin to develop in our lives. There's nothing like unexplained and unexpected uh, expected adversity that leads to our faith being tested and asking questions. I was speaking to somebody fairly recently who has lost somebody very close to them. And they've been strong as believers for a while, but just, just like probably many of us as believers, we might have questions and we put them in little boxes and we pop them up on the shelf, as it were, somewhere. There's a little question here, well, we'll maybe get round to thinking about that sometime. And I think he'd got everything up on the shelf and his pain began to to inform his thinking. And all of these little doubt boxes had been opened up. And he was expressing these as he's seeking, I think, to work through the question, the big question that he has. 
that perhaps questions he would never thought he would have, have asked in terms of doubt simply because of the pain we experience. Oh, we're subject to that. It's all very easy to be a believer when things are going smoothly. But when pain comes our way, it's hard to remember that God is with us and God still has a purpose for us and a future for us and our loved ones. For the Hebrews in Egypt... Yahweh Shalom, Lord is peace. Yahweh Jireh, the Lord who provides, the God of providence and peace, continued to speak with his people. He speaks to Moses. He calls Moses into the situation. And Moses bravely and courageously goes as a person of faith and obedience to lead the people from where they are to where they are to go, to move forward in the plan and purposes of God when they were helpless. And God still speaks. God is still with us in our pain. And if you find yourself in a place like that today where you've been pulling those little doubt boxes off the shelf and started to question, just like the psalmist, who began to see the injustice within the world and wonder, does God really care? God is with you, even if it doesn't feel like it. God still has a, a future, which you, you can hope in. An example of hope in the midst of adversity is, uh, could be illustrated by Martin Luther King's tremendous speech, but he had more than one. I'm thinking of two in particular when uh, with the uh, racial discrimination that was going on in America at the time, he, he stood up and he said, um, and here's a quotation from his speech in which he describes a vision embodied uh, in, 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 a, in a dream that he had. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I would have loved to have heard this speech there and then. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering in the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today and that speech full of faith, faith in God, was able to, um, it was a, a speech full of faith in God who was able to fulfill this dream that Martin Luther King had. Against a backdrop where, in which he described what it was like, he said, I have a dream that one day down in Alabama with its vicious racists, and its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification, 
one day write down in Alabama little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. That was the backdrop in which he had a dream. And this, this man, as we know, uh, this is USA at the time, and he was assassinated some five years later. It's not paradise here. It's paradise where we're going. And sometimes we experience a little bit of the paradise, a little bit of heaven on the way to heaven. And that's great to experience, but it is a fallen world. And we will have troubles. We are engaged in spiritual warfare in life, in our own walk of faith, and in our churches too. But God is with us. We should expect nothing other than conflict, pain, and suffering in a fallen world. But we have a hope of a paradise yet to be. Just epitomized in the promised land that the people were moving out of slavery towards. It's a picture of our being released from the tyranny of sin and having a hope with God that we can walk through God towards a promised land. God gives us a vision for that. God is with us. He still speaks to us about a hope and a future in the midst of all of this. A people with a past, people with a present crisis, a people with a future. And this is the context into which we find these words, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 27, 28, about Moses. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and its application of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. This leaving Egypt, not fearing the king's anger, I think refers to his second leaving of Egypt when he takes the people out of Egypt towards Sinai to worship rather than the first leaving after he has killed an Egyptian. And it says, by faith he kept the Passover and the application of blood. Picture there. So that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. Despite the circumstances that they were in, Moses had heard from God and he continued to trust and obey. Along with Aaron, he speaks to the people consistently and is a great example of trust, of faith and obedience. When you hear from God, and sometimes he calls us out of a comfort zone into a place where we're going to have an impact. We take courage and faith to follow through. I liken Moses when he's um, in... uh, in, um, he's out of Egypt uh, and he's enjoying family life and everything else where God calls him uh, from that place. To somebody who's experienced burnout somewhere in ministry and I've actually walked away from the whole thing um, and it could be a minister who experiences burnout and go- goes on to another job. It could be a Sunday school teacher who said, oh, this is just too much. I'm not going to do, I'm not going back there. 
Uh, it could be somebody else that's been involved in a particular ministry. And you've moved into a place of actually, it's quite nice just not to have to do this anymore. For God to come knocking on your door and saying, I've got a job for you to do. Oh, no. That's how Moses felt. Yet he knew he'd heard from God and he was obedient to the call. And because of that, through his faith and his obedience, he led the people out and he was a means of blessing to them. Most of us here are familiar with the story of the plagues in Egypt and how God spoke at that time. Pharaoh had been obstinate. He had been murdering the firstborn of the Jews. And now the time had come when he wouldn't let the people go. And he was so obstinate about this that it took drastic measures for him to relent. You may have difficulties and questions with the intervention of God here. It would have been understood differently by the people of the time. But nevertheless, this was the command to kill the lamb and to daub the lintels and the doorposts with the blood. And the angel of death would pass over the households of the Hebrew people. And Moses did so. By faith, he kept the Passover and the application of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. Hebrews 11 tells us, by faith, it says that, it says that here, these are the words in Hebrews 11. They're on the screen. Or oh, these words here, let's, no, let's go back to that one. Uh, go back to uh, the one you were on there. I think, um, yeah, we'll, we'll stick with that one just now, because I really like these words. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. There's so much in that. Exodus chapter 12, verse 13. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. It's the gospel, isn't it? It's not just about a sacrificed lamb in the Passover. Jesus takes the Passover and he turns it into the Lord's Supper. He says, do this in remembrance of me. What did they do it in remembrance of? They did it in remembrance of a Passover lamb, but he says, do this in remembrance of me. This is the new covenant in my blood. So it wasn't the meat, the blood. It was him. And it was a shadow of a reality that was to come in Christ, which is what the book of Hebrews um, illustrates so very well. The lamb is like a symbol of Christ. The blood is his life given. And the exodus is a deliverance for the people who put their faith in the blood of Christ. And are delivered from the slavery and tyranny of sin. And set free to take a journey on to a promise that lies in the future beyond Jordan whether we see Jordan as baptism or death. And in some ways, we can see it as both. When we become Christians, our lives are given meaning and purpose which we don't have 
until we come to Christ. And then we realize we're created in the image of God. God has a purpose for our lives. It's not just a run around like an animal going out to work and coming in and going to bed and going out to work again. And just like we can read meaningless, meaningless in the, in the book of uh, Ecclesiastes, uh, when the questioning comes about what is the meaning of life, we find the meaning of life when we come to, to Christ. All of a sudden I go out, not to work for my boss, but I work for the Savior, who has said seven, six days shall you labor, and the seventh you shall rest. I do it as a part of my worship to a God who has saved me, and I have a relationship with this living God who loves me, and I can talk to him, and he talks with me. And I can live life in such a way that contributes to the lives of others and brings blessing to the glory of God and joy to them and reward, a sense of reward to me in return. It's a wonderful thing to be a Christian. To know a direction that we're heading to and it's not just for this life, it's for the life to come and Christ has taken my sins and he has dealt with them forever and they're buried in the deepest sea and they're gone. And I don't have to give an account for my sin because he has paid the price for me and I look to him. I look to the cross on the day of judgment and know that his sacrifice was sufficient. I have that assurance that I'm going to be there not because of who I am or what I've done or what I intend to do, but because of what he has done for me as my substitute and representative. It's wonderful. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. We have hope. Whether we're in a crisis or in, at any other time, in closing, Again, Martin Luther King in his final sermon on April 3rd, 1968, he preached this way. He said, we've got some difficult days ahead, but it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop and I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain and I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. I think he was likening himself to Moses. Because Moses looked over into the promised land. He didn't get there. He was taken before that time. And it was on the following day, April the 4th, 1968, that Martin Luther King was assassinated. He was killed. But his legacy lived on and his legacy lives on. He had a vision of a future era of spiritual blessing to come. And that's the hope that we have, whether as individuals or even as churches, 
This church, Edry Baptist Church, has had a great past, and it remains a good church at this present time. What challenges, what interventions, what difficulties might Edry Baptist Church face in the future that could threaten its longevity and its prosperity? These things can happen. What hope and vision has God given to the church for the future? God's word to us this morning is a reminder to us that from generation to generation, God intends his church to remain and continue until Christ returns. This is a God of covenant who is with us in our circumstances. And we need to be people of faith, courage, and obedience to whatever God reveals to be his will along the way that makes for that. God has a future for his church here. It may well be contested by circumstances. The Lord will continue to give vision to his people. And like the Hebrews of old, his call will be for his people to continue to be full of faith. And then he will lead us forward. He will lead you forward in his will. Let's pray together. Father, we can learn a lot from these people to whom we have time-traveled in our imagination, as it were, as they face such difficulties yet heard from you in the midst of it all and were reminded that you were with them and you made a way for them. Lord, would you make a way for anyone here, any individual here who, is, who identifies so fully with these circumstances described here of pain, informing their thinking, causing them to doubt in ways that they've never done. And question, is the Lord with me? Yes, the Lord is with you, brother, sister. He is with you according to his promise, irrespective of how you feel. Lord, make a way and reveal that way. That brother or sister, that, that brother or sister might be able to take it and be led in that way and move out of the oppression that they have experienced boldly, stepping in faith towards that which is, for, like Abraham, not knowing necessarily where it's going to lead to, but knowing that they walk hand in hand in fellowship with you towards a hope and a promise that you have for them. In Jesus' name, amen.